This is the NX of Sociology podcast. I'm Joe Cohen from the City University of New York. Today, we talk about Twitter with Stephen Barnard from St. Lawrence University. Stephen is the author of Citizens at the Gate, Twitter, Network Publics, and the Transformation of American Journalism with Paul Grave McMillan. Our discussion was recorded on April 23rd, 2020. Stephen Barnard is from St. Lawrence University. Stephen, can you tell us a little bit about St. Lawrence before we get started? St. Lawrence is a small liberal arts college in a tiny little college town in uh, northern New York. It's so northern, we don't even identify as upstate. We are northern New York (laughs) or otherwise known as the North Country. Nice. And I met Stephen at this year's ESS in Philadelphia. We were on a panel together. And he was doing some really cool work on uh, Twitter and how Twitter has influenced uh, the field of journalism. And I thought it was really cool in and of itself, but also, you know, it had me thinking about social Twitter and, you know, journalists and and academics are sort of, you know, cousin fields. So it's really one of those interesting topics and he was a cool guy. So thank you very much for uh, coming on, Stephen. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Joe. All right. So first of all, for those of us who are on Twitter, it's hard to believe that not everybody is on Twitter. But <laughs> it turns out that m- many, if not most, are not, in fact, on Twitter. So let's start off. What is Twitter? Like, people get that you can make short messages, right? But, like, what's going on with Twitter? Twitter is a social media platform. It was uh, started, you know, in the mid-2000s. It, um, it's, it's a public platform. And it, it really is the place that, uh, that kind of invented many of the sort of social media norms that we've come to know today across lots of platforms. The hashtag, the at symbol, um, uh-huh. uh, the sort of retweeting and sharing, all of those things were sort of early kind of native developments to Twitter. And many of them came out of the Twitter community. So in that sense, it's really kind of was a very much a tech oriented community. It was most popular in Silicon Valley uh, in in its early years. And of course, a lot of uh, sort of industry insiders and journalists have a lot strong kind of uh, overlap. And so journalists were were some of the first groups that, that took to that. And I think partly because of its publicness, right? Unlike most other social media, you don't have to have an account to view tweets, but yeah, the, the culture of Twitter, uh, I, I, in the book I talk about, um, in some ways, a metaphor I borrowed from, from others years ago, this idea that it's kind of like a cocktail party, that, that there's yeah. you know, a pretty diverse one, where there's all these things happening in different places. So you can go one place, you can go another, you can, you can jump in on one conversation or another. So it's a lot of things. And, and right. I, I also agree, uh, or I can relate to your sort of comment about social Twitter. When I, when I first started working on this project, gosh, uh, over a decade ago, I was also uh, thinking about you know, doing a next project on, on academic Twitter. And uh, thankfully mm-hmm. for my sanity, I have not done that. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's good but, uh, but it's, it's there, right? It's important, <laughs> important space. It's a short messaging platform. People know that. And first of all, one quarter of America was engaged in the medium. So that has to make it one of the largest communications media, you know, communications media out there. Like how many, what percentage of the public reads a newspaper, for example? Certainly it's not the most, it's not the biggest place that people go for news. People still go prefer sort of television, other sorts of things for news. A lot of people use it for sports or for politics or for culture. Um, but right, I mean, certainly at its peak, 
you know, just to put it in context, right, uh, YouTube and Facebook are still, you know, three times more popular uh, than, than Twitter when it was at its peak. Now it's at its low 20, I think it's 22 percent. Yeah. So so Twitter is popular because it because it's, you know, 20, 20 some odd percent people using it uh, in the country. That's a that's a big platform, but it's nothing in comparison to uh, to some of the other uh, larger platforms like like YouTube, uh, like Facebook. And of course, it's demographically, it skews um, younger and more educated. So it's certainly not representative of, of the entire American public. Yeah, it's like where the, I, I was thinking about that today when I was reading your book. It's like where the upper middle class goes to exchange multimedia embellished uh, quips. It's <laughs> <laughs> one way to think about it. But it, but it is a powerful force, right? Like it, it has changed a lot of society. Like a lot of people think Donald Trump has uh, garnered a lot of power to communicate directly to people through Twitter and has been able to circumvent the media. Like what is Twitter doing to society? Uh, big picture. I think, I think you have your finger on, on a big chunk of it. Uh, what, what interested me so much in Twitter was in, in some part because of its salience within journalism. I'm a media sociologist. I study journalists. And so that was always interesting to me. Uh, but it also has a very strong salience uh, in politics. And so if we're thinking about sort of social groups that are overrepresented on the platform, journalists and politicians are, are two of the most visible of those groups. And of course, those are both pretty powerful groups. But in part, uh, it's because that's a platform that allows them to uh, you know, for, for journalists to get access to the public, to get asked access to politicians, to collect information from each other in real time. You know, it's, a, it's a, it, it, in some ways it hasn't replaced the newswire because the Associated Press and Reuters and AFP and these other sort of platforms uh, that, that, that provide that sort of newswire service still do that. But it's an even more up to date kind of like less verified newswire that, that in some ways has changed the culture. You know, people used to talk you know, a decade or two ago about 24 seven, uh, news, 24 hour news cycle because of, you know, cable television, you know, it's become, uh, you know, a you know, a, a second by second news cycle when we're talking about Twitter because it's so heavily used by, by journalists and by, you know, what, what might be described in the field as newsmakers, right? People uh, who are in positions of power, especially in the, in the political field that, uh, that use the platform and Trump's, the key example of that, right? He uses the platform to drive attention to one thing or another, which is something I really interested in look at, you know, later part in the book. So what exactly do journalists do on Twitter? Uh, A lot of things. Uh, In some ways, I think journalists use of Twitter um, is is strange, just as you were saying, like that we can feel as if there's a that Twitter is a space where you know a bunch of sort of upper middle class people gather to sort of share things. There is definitely, I think, a sense amongst many journalists that 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 it's just a, a big room of all of them talking to each other, uh, and in part because again how overrepresented they are. Um, but in that sense, some of the stuff I look at in the book has to do with this sort of kind of water cooler feature. And that's part of uh, sort of what I you know, describe as sort of, uh, you know, journalistic meta discourse, the way that they talk to each other about Twitter on Twitter. Uh, and that was something that was, you know, a lot of ooh, data for me. Um, but there's other things that, that are probably much more important there in terms of the types of things that they do. Right. So looking uh, at their feeds, uh, sort of curating those feeds around lots of different topics and sort of beats. That's information gathering, right? They have the opportunity to sort of uh, uh, use Twitter to to get access to sources. 
um, a lot of things that I saw, you know, sort of early on, which I think is still the case in uh, in some uh, sectors of Twitter uh, in journalism, is to do with like public note taking. So many of them are attending hearings, attending places, and they're literally sort of writing down parts of the story on Twitter that then they'll sort of, uh, so the public can follow along as it's happening live. And then later on, they go put those pieces together into the bigger story. And so I've seen, you know, lots of people say that, that you, know, ju- you know, journalists say that, that if you follow them on Twitter, you, sometimes you get more of the story than you would get, you know, in the published version because you're kind of getting the raw bits. Um, I would say that's not true for, for all journalists, but it is for some. Um, you know, of course, they're doing public engagement. The idea of engagement was a big buzzword uh, in journalism a decade. Or, what, does that, what does that mean? What does that mean? Uh, it just means to reach out to the public, to be communicative of the, uh, with them. Like answer their questions or? Right. Um, to be social. So the idea of like social media as it came out was like you could access the journalists in a way that, okay, you used to be able to, to access them by if you ran into them at a bar or if you wrote a letter to the editor that probably didn't never got responded to, maybe never even read. Um, now, like if they're visible on there, and of course, this is both the blessing and the curse of Twitter, uh, because as we know, there are certain populations, especially if we're talking about a, you know, a, a climate in which lots of people don't trust uh, uh, members of the media, um, that there's, you know, symbolic violence against them. There's, you know, sort of threats, there's harassment. Um, and I think that's a very real problem that, that Twitter kind of has brought about. But being public and being willing to engage with the public is is a big part of that. And the other thing, of course, they do that is obvious, which is perhaps why I left it for last, is that they that they share news there. It's a it's a it's a means of disseminating their work and and hopefully getting driving back traffic to, you know, the place that they're publishing it that's getting the ad revenue in the first place. So they're 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 uh their employers' websites most often. Does it make them better journalists, you think? <laughs> if you walk into a newsroom and ask that question, as some studies have done, I think you'll you'll see a, a very uh, uh, sort of divided uh, sort of response. I think uh, some would say um, that it certainly updated, it helped update the profession uh, and some of its practices, but that's not always good, right? And again, part of the critiques of the 24-7 news cycle, uh, you know, from the television era were were we're talking about the problems of trying to be sort of always on looking for, for what's new to, to push that even further. Um, I think, I think in some ways it has in the sense of being more public and being more visible prior to the sort of extreme kind of political moment that we, that many feel like we're in today um, probably was a, a benefit to, to the profession. But, um, uh, but of course, Twitter's gotten a lot of, you know, perhaps credit where maybe it's not always warranted and also a lot of blame where I think it's not warranted, right? There's a lot of, I don't mean to say that Twitter doesn't um, have some responsibility as a, as a platform or as a company to, to be responsible um, uh, for, for the way that the types of things that they allow or for the changes that happen in, in the profession. But I think it's absolutely the case um, that, that because of the time in which this was happening, you know, uh, Twitter became really popular in the late 2000s, right around the time of the economic crisis, when there was a lot of closures, um, you know, there was a, a crisis in, in newspapers, especially across the country. Uh, and I think it was, for some, it might have been easy to lump in Twitter and say, well, social media or the internet or Craigslist, as some people have claimed, is sort of the, the death of the news industry. But there's a lot of other things that were happening that they were pretty change averse for a long time, um, that I think Twitter was one space that sort of forced them to innovate a little bit. 
Um, so it's, it's hard to isolate it as a variable, I guess is what I'm saying. In a way, like I, I always feel like Twitter's made communications infrastructure more ready, readily available to like the people who actually created the content and kind of let them compete directly with their former employers. Like, for example, there's a lot of big magazines that are like hosted on Medium now. Where it used to be that like physical distribution was one way that old media enterprises sort of monopolized their place in the in the chain, right? Like you 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 had they had a say because they ran the printing presses. There are places where um, where of course there are main media. If you're you're a journalist at CNN, you're going to try to you know you're going to go on television or or you're going to try to drive people to to the web, and so Twitter isn't their primary means of communication for many people. Again, if we think about Trump, perhaps it is his primary means of communication, at least in terms of uh, of, uh, of where one goes to share the message initially um, because, because of his position in the political and journalistic field. Other people journalists and, and members of the public will take and will share that message through their own channels on social media, on established media, through newspapers, television, radio, etc. Um, but for so for a lot of people, especially for journalists, it's not their main medium, but it, it has changed the way that they that they do business in part because um, because it's a space where where they're collecting that information and also a space where they're where they're sharing it out to the to to the public and to each other. A, a lot of you know many people don't know this, but some of the most kind of uh, voracious uh, sort of consumers of news are our newsmakers themselves, right? Even if they're a small portion of the population, uh, they're a significant uh, sort of uh, consumer base um, in that way. But at the same time, like a, a, a Twitter following can be an asset that the journalist holds, right? It's like a, almost a basis of power that they own personally apart from, from their employer. I'm thinking about the uh, Melissa Perry Harris uh, story in your book. You want to tell us Melissa that story? Harris Perry? Excuse me, Melissa Harris Perry. Yes, do you want to tell the uh, the story? Absolutely. Yeah that that um, that chapter almost didn't make it in the book. Uh, to be honest, yeah. in part uh, in part because you know compared to the others, it seems perhaps less important. I mean, the book is based on a number of case studies, right? I look at the Boston Marathon bombing. I look at uh, yeah. you know, I look at the protests in Ferguson, Missouri. I look at the election of Donald Trump. Um, but the but the chapter about Melissa Harris Perry um, is interesting to me because. Uh, for a couple of reasons, right? One of which is to say, so Melissa Harris Perry, those of you who don't know, um, is a is an academic, uh, but she had a um, had a television. She's a political scientist and had a television show on MSNBC. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, in I think it was uh, twenty, uh, I think yeah, I think it was twenty fifteen yeah. or something uh, that she had a very public sort of um, uh, announcement that she had lost her job in MSNBC. Mm -hmm. um, and she sort of learned about it um, uh, sort of privately, but, but one of her producers kind of posted the information about this on Twitter. And she's got a pretty large following at that time, especially on Twitter from her show. And they, and I, I actually never unearthed, and all of my reads about this, I never un, really unearthed the origin of it, but they called themselves uh, sort of Melissa Harris Perry nerds. And they, and they, they sort of collected under the hashtag nerdland. And they, that, that hashtag blew up as soon as that announcement was made. And to me, it was interesting because, um, and I guess this is part of what you're getting at in terms of their own kind of capital, um, yeah. but they have this sort of prestige that they built. For me, in, in the book, I'm looking primarily at the capital that, that journalists are building through their use of Twitter. I think to some extent that's true of Melissa Harris-Perry, but to some extent that's also true of, of just 
her audience's use of Twitter as a back channel to talk about the content that she was mm-hmm. talking about on her program. And, and, and mobilize people as well. Absolutely, right? And so uh, her one of her producers, I believe, um, kind of mobilized the public to try to respond to her to MSNBC, her former employer. They, they were, you know, history tells us they weren't actually successful at this, um, but to try to call them out uh, in doing that. And so to me, that chapter was was kind of an analysis of 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 the use of Twitter, of sort of public use of Twitter to sort of engage in agenda setting, right? To tell not just the public in this case, but to tell members of the media what to be thinking about, what to be writing about in this case. And so what I look at is kind of the the sort of uh, proliferation of responses trying to sort of rally behind Melissa Harris Perry and defend, um, you know, her, her position at MSNBC and the sort of slow response after that, but a pretty clear response after that to start uh, among the media covering it. Because until the public started covering it, and this has been true in other uh, cases that other people have studied, um, after the, the, the public sort of makes it go viral online, then the media kind of responds and says, okay, there's a story here. Uh, in some ways, uh, if y'all, uh, some, of, some of the listeners might remember uh, sort of Stephen Colbert's famous uh, sort of White House um, uh, press dinner uh, sort of speech in which he ripped apart the media. Uh, that wasn't um, something that, that got much attention in the media, but it went viral on the Internet. And because of that, many attest uh, it started to then become covered by the media after the fact. And so I, I saw sort of a similar phenomenon happening with Harris Perry. You know what I like about that is it shows that uh, the followings that people get on Twitter are resources that can be mobilized by who owns it. And it's interesting to me because sometimes I see media outlets that force their employees to incorporate the publication's name in their Twitter handle. Like, for example, if I were working at the New York Times, I'd be Joe Cohen NYT or, you know, uh, Joe Cohen CNN. And I, I get that what's going on there is that the uh, the outlets and the journalists, there's like a dynamic where they're fighting over who gets the fruits of the Twitter platforms that are built. Uh, do you, do you have you ever looked at this? Have you noticed this? Is this a thing? I you're it's absolutely a thing. Um, I, I I don't particularly uh, sort of look at it in, in my work, but uh, but absolutely others have. Uh, and it's very clear if you just pay attention to journalists' use of Twitter uh, that that that's what's going on there. It was something I was really interested in early when I was doing this research. I started this project in like beginning of 2009, uh, and so that was sort of still becoming the case, right? If we look at it today, um, you know, as of a few years ago, over seven, you know, other studies have shown over 70 percent of the America's sort of largest newspapers had formal policies governing Twitter usage or social media usage more general. So now there are policies, right? Um, and, and those policies sometimes govern that sort of a thing. Um, uh, and so you're right. Ownership over that capital uh, is, is, is a battleground. Um, some, some places you'll see that they actually own the followers. They own the account. And so when they leave, the employer gets the I don't know what they do with it because they couldn't repurpose it. It's a, it's a different individual, um, but they're really not able to, to take it because the identity, the brand is tied to the network or, you know, the, the outlet that they work for. Others, uh, you know, and you can tell this if, they're, if their name is just, you know, um, you know, 
uh, I think Maggie Haberman's is NYT. Uh, but if we think of, you know, some others who uh, who sort of cover, um, you know, whatever issue, but they're not necessarily beholden to their outlet, then they're not necessarily owned by that. I don't want to make a suggestion that because someone has the title in their in their name, that means that they are forced by their employer. But I think that's a fair inference to say that they're expected to if it's if it's emblazoned very much like that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's it's part of their brand. And so we're thinking about uh, branding is a big part of uh, of what journalists and, and many people on social media in general are doing these days. And so tying their brand to an institution versus tying it to themselves, I think, tells you a lot about about whose capital is that really at the end of the day. Yeah, I would say, like, if, if, if they're electing to do it, it's a terrible decision. Like, never, never tie your social media properties to your current employer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just... A poor design. I, I would I would have to assume they're being forced, <laughs> although you never know with people. It's a, um, it's a fair assumption. <laughs> All right. Now, explain how social capital works with journalists on Twitter. Like, how what, what's it worth? Like, obviously, you're right. Like, if if Maggie Haberman quits the New York Times, it's not like the New York Times can do that. Uh, can 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 do anything with that Twitter handle? Like, it falls into disuse. Yet. Uh, it is something that the New York Times can hold over Maggie Haberman's head. Be like, listen, if you want continued access to this Twitter handle, that's part of the package of you staying with us. Presumably it has some value to Maggie. What are they? Like you talk about a social capital. What, what do you get for, for a Twitter following in journalism? If we're talking about pro, sort of like different social fields that in which Twitter matters, I think journalism is one of the spaces where it matters more than mm-hmm. a lot of others. Um, uh, because what you have is an audience, right? You, you've built a following. And mm-hmm. so just as sort of, you know, cultural social media influencers use that as part of their brand to say, look, I have people who pay attention to me. I think absolutely journalists have that. And so the idea of sort of social capital, if we're just going to measure that in the number of followers that someone has, or in how sort of how much engagement probably more directly people are able to generate from those followers, how many likes, how many retweets per, I mean, the ratios kind of of those things matter uh, amongst amongst the sort of, uh, you know, sort of social media metrics. Um, so yeah, social capital matters in the sense because it, it translates just as, you know, again, I, I use, uh, Bourdieu a lot in this book to sort of, uh, demonstrate that. And of course, he was very interested in how these types of capital sort of transfer from one to the other, right? So it's not as if they're ends in and of themselves. To have a big following base, um, you know, on, on, on Twitter or to, to have a bunch of subscribers, uh, to a newspaper, matters because it sells papers, right? It, it leads to clicks. It leads to uh, the generation of, of economic capital. Um, you know, the sort of cultural capital aspect of this, which is probably produced kind of most one of his most famous concepts, was something I was less interested in in this book, in part because it's kind of hard to measure the kind of credentialing or the knowledge structures, in part because where I was looking was on Twitter. And so the people who are visible and successful on Twitter, I, I looked at some of this and, and other studies that, you know, other parts of this that showed that, you know, there are more kind of sophisticated uses of Twitter for people who are big surprise and more heavy, heavy users of Twitter. And those who were kind of forced to do this by their apparently forced to do it by their employer. They have this account. They don't really use Twitter very much. They just kind of say, come on, come, you know, tune in at nine o'clock. I'll be on television talking about this mm-hmm. type of uses of Twitter. That's a pretty sort of low cultural capital uh, sort of, um, you know, deployment uh, uh, of the of the platform. 
Uh, but what I was most interested in, I think, throughout much of the book was the notion of symbolic capital, right? The sort of prestige that they're able to build through the platform. Uh, and again, that, that translates in some ways to social capital, uh, but it has to do with the kind of the, the distinctiveness of, of their work. And so people who are very vocal, who are very successful at using the platform to, um, to, uh, to, to, to sort of direct attention to one issue or another, um, is is profound. And if, again, if we look at journalism, we can see, well, that that's sort of can what se- separate uh, a successful journalist from one another can allow them to kind of jump from one you know job to one that, that they might perceive as a better job. Um, mm-hmm. But I also think it, to me, it was a much more sort of interesting when looking at the intersection of the journalist and the political field. So when we look at uh, sort of activists or citizen journalists using uh, Twitter, we look at, you know, politicians like Trump using Twitter, then we start to see that symbolic capital really matters there because it's their ability mm-hmm. to kind of um, to kind of build a prestige for themselves and to use that to kind of wield power um, over the political field. Do you, uh, are you on social Twitter? Uh, I am not as much as I used to be. I, uh, for a number of reasons, including, uh, you know, uh, the kind of more difficult of uh, one time I'm, I'm a parent, I got young children and I've had a hard time yeah. trying to figure out how to, how to balance that with, uh, with my, my sort of work responsibilities. And, and so Twitter kind of took a, took a backseat to my personal life. As it should, as it should. Yeah. Uh, oh no, it should. Yeah. Twitter should take a backseat. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I think I got burned out, uh, over the years. I used to use it, you know, very heavily. When I started this in 2009, I was on Twitter, like, you know, you know, a picture like behind a laptop screen from my Midwestern college town, you know, sort of learning about journalists and the field of journalism, you know, you know, in part through that platform and, and doing the same for other areas of, of, of sociology. I was all in for, for a number of years. I've sort of pulled away from it uh, today, but I still think that, that I, you know, I dipped my toes in. I I used to be voracious as, as a, as a conference goer, uh, very active on Twitter uh, and the hashtags there. Again, I've become less so. My processes have changed a little bit because people who are vulnerable get attacked from uh, from people who disagree with them uh, in kind of the cancel culture sort of environment. I've had some run-ins with those sorts of issues too. Uh, I don't want to say that it certainly didn't scare me away or silence me, but I think it made me a little more cautious in terms of how I use it, even if you know my my dean was supportive and I haven't uh, you know had any negative repercussions directly from it. Uh, yeah. per- all of those things together made me less active on social Twitter than than I wish I were. I think it's a lot of a lot of downsides uh, too. It's like it's just for the upside, the limited upside. There's just a lot of downsides, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think if for for some people it's extraordinarily uh, effective to be able to build a brand and to use that to launch. I mean, again, if we think about some of the most successful public sociologists t- today, right? Tracy McMillan Cottom just won the ASA's Public Sociology Award. She's done an extraordinary public sociology work, but I think part of that, including podcasting and lots of other things, but part of that I think was built on the backs of a Twitter following. Um, and so, in that sense, it's it's transferable. Um, but you have to really give it the attention in order to do that. And, you know, I just wasn't able to carve out the amount of time in my, in my life to be able to give it that. And so I just chose not to do that, but you're right. I think there's more, there can be more downsides than upsides for many people. Yes. Okay. Yes. Because to generate the, the, one of the sure strategies to generating a very large following is to do a considerable volume on Twitter. My understanding is, is that, 
there's a pretty strong correlation between number of tweets and uh, followers. Am I wrong about that? I haven't uh, done the research on that, but but it's my sense as well, right? That you tend to have have ratio, and if you look at again, like and again, in sort of the the metric for influencers uh, in social media plays a little bit different on Twitter, I think, than it does on yeah. other platforms. Um, but absolutely, I think there is a strong correlation with heavy users uh, being being much more successful uh, in terms of if we measure that in terms of follower base than those who are sporadic. And certainly those who are uh, kind of low users are sporadic. If they're not consistent in their use, yeah. that's sort of a, a uh, that's kind of the death to any influencer. Yeah, I, I remember looking this up because we were having a discussion years ago and we looked at sort of the most prolific Twitter personalities in our discipline. And they had like hundreds of thousands of tweets. And it literally, to build the following that they had, required uh, something on the order of 10 tweets a day every day for 10 years or something like that. So it takes, you're right, it takes a considerable amount of energy to develop a, a, a large following, like in the tens of thousands. Right. And, and in addition to that, right, I mean, it requires kind of a, a an ideal authentic sort of balance, uh, sort of borrowing that phrase, I think, from uh, one of our colleagues, Jenny Davis, who does some work on sort of presentation of self in, in the digital era. Um, and, you know, the idea of authenticity means they can't all just be work tweets, right? They can't all yeah. just be social tweets. It can't, you know, it doesn't mean they have to be pictures of your food or they have to be, you know, explicit political opinions or, you know, pictures of your of your pets. But, but yeah, there's a balance of, of kind of uh, what, what matters to the audience and humanizing oneself in, in ways that I think play for lots of other fields, including for journalists. Um, but that's a, that's a difficult – to do all of those things means you're not just letting Twitter and, – and by that I guess I mean anyone who wants to, to pull up your account on Twitter. Uh, you're not just letting the world into a slice of your life. If you want to build an influence, you have to let them into a bigger slice of your life and – um, and I think that's 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 some of the blessing and the curse of it, depending on what your perspective is on it, for sure. What's your view on its uh, overall influence in the discipline? Like, do you think it it helps sociology? Do you think it harms it? What, what's your view? Or do you think it's sort of neutral? I think it's sort of neutral. Um, yeah. In part, I mean, if you were to ask me years ago, uh, and I think I would have said that that it has a potential to really, uh, you know, make a difference in terms of. Uh, allowing us to build community outside of the couple times a year that we might coalesce around conferences. You know, in in the era we're living in now uh, with COVID nineteen, it might be the case that 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 we need channels like this more to stay uh, stay attuned to each other. So I, I'm not giving up on the platform uh, or any other. I, maybe maybe it's not Twitter uh, that 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 is our space. Um, uh, but I think. Uh, I think it's probably a wash in terms of uh, in terms of uh, the entire base, and I think that's in part because of adoption, right? I mean, if we if we went to places years ago, or certainly to other disciplines, and I, I remember talking to colleagues in other disciplines and telling them that like when you go to a conference, you gotta be on the hashtag, and if you're not, then you're kind of missing out on part of the conference. And they looked at me like I was crazy. Uh, and I said, just try it. At least read. You, know, you don't have to post something. Just like check out what people are talking about. And you realize that things that are not being said um, in the room are being said silently uh, in the room or after in ways that I think are extraordinary. So I think I think it adds as a sort of back channel, um, uh, as it's often called, to our conference experiences. And it allows us to have those types of conversations 
on and off. I found times where I've sought advice and people who I didn't even know followed me um, have responded with with very uh, helpful advice that have lead to you know helping me you know secure publications or um, or just advice that that have allowed me to follow a lead or find relevant literature. So in that sense, I think it really is beneficial. But I, I, I guess and so maybe it is a, a net benefit. Um, you know, on second thought, but I think one of the things I, I've still kind of let down about, and this is a, a gripe of a media sociologist who who looks at the field and sees very few jobs, very few, uh, you know, kind of uh, dedicated focus within the sociology as a discipline on media, is that we're kind of averse to change. And, and if we look at the whole of the field, there's not a lot of interest, um, uh, at least academically uh, to look at media and technology from this particular perspective. And so I think I think as time goes on and we start to see, uh, you know, kind of uh, the, the younger generations start to have greater positions of power uh, in sociology who are more normalized to Twitter, who found out sociology sometimes through Twitter, at least parts of it, uh, that we might see that change, assuming that Twitter is around and still kicking um, yeah. some years from now. I always think of it as, uh, well, I mean, you talk about this too, about like kind of being like the faculty club or the water cooler or something like that. Like I have no doubt that it's influential. I mean, if you look on Twitter, I mean, you'll see, you'll see sort of mid-career people from virtually every major department in the country, you know, you can potentially reach. And a message goes further than a, an ASA plenary session would have 20 years ago, right? <laughs> It's just we're talking with our contemporaries rather than the people who we're physically close to. So I, I, I like it in a way. I always see it, think of it as the faculty club. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, good point. I mean, it, again, this is the social capital aspect, right? That, yeah. that uh, And again, if you think about this uh, as someone who's not landed, um, you know, in, um, in a strong job at a major, uh, a high-ranked department, uh, who has travel funds and can do all these things, how do you build networks, right? Yeah. Uh, and so social media, and particularly sort of the social Twitter, allows for people to build a following. And to, mm. you know, of course, you could do that just as you could be awkward at a conference and not uh, and mm. not interact with people if it, if it seems forced or it's, you know, uh, you're glaring at name badges or you're not uh, sort of being genuine in terms of what you're there to do, which is to ask for advice or to share knowledge or to um, or to just kind of, uh, you know, share your experiences or thoughts about any particular thing. That if you're if you're doing that, then you could be adding value to a conversation. And if you're adding value to that conversation, people can notice you for that. Um, yeah. And those things can translate, uh, of course, from Twitter to in person. Right? When we first met, uh, one of the first things I heard you say to another contemporary uh, in in the conference room at, at at ESS was, "Oh, we're so we're Twitter friends, and now we get to meet in person." Right? This happens yeah. at conferences all the time. All right? the time. All the time. Yeah. You know. That, yeah. There's. I think there's two uses for it. There are some people who conceptualize Twitter as uh, sort of like a megaphone by which they can privately distribute messages to the world. And then there are others who see it like a social gathering. It's like you are mostly there to have sort of conversations or eavesdrop on what people are reading or thinking about. And I enjoyed that, that second group. And uh, I think that, that, that part, that, that Twitter is a very nice Twitter. Like I like that part of the business. Yeah, the, I agree. You know, but it, it's not, you know, have you ever read uh, that Cal Newport uh, book on uh, deep work and like, I have not, 
I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. It's a great. It, it's pretty good. I uh, I caught wind of it. I think through like uh, some Ezra Klein podcast or something. But like his his whole thing was like you know you should probably just focus on your job. <laughs> and uh, and you'll do your own job properly, and you can build a much larger following, which is probably true, right? Like, uh, yeah, and I think this is probably true for for journalism yeah. as well, right? I mean, if we're talking about what are the, what are the things that 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 gain that gain sociologists symbolic capital, yeah. gain prestige, it's. It's not necessarily Twitter isn't the first thing on the list. In fact, it's not even on most promotion and tenure packages. It's probably not on the minds. Oh, it's able to track hiring committees. Yeah, yeah. it could <laughs> it track. It. Yeah, it's like uh, podcasting. I like right. it. Only detracts from your your job. So, so I think it's the same. Yeah. So, absolutely yeah. right. So, what what matters most? If publications, teaching, you know, the the other sort of uh, service work that we're doing, right? Those things uh, matter there. And I think it's the same for journalism, right? If you're if you have a big uh, following on Twitter and, and yet you're you're not publishing good stories, uh, I, I I it's hard to see those things as separate because they're often pretty strongly correlated. Uh, but if you're one of those anomalies that that has ha, has the Twitter presence but not the the sort of uh, more traditional media presence, yeah, you're probably not uh, going to, to jump uh, rungs uh, in the industry with, with that method. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you could be in a school that's geographically isolated or you might, you know, might not have the funds to subscribe to everything, but you can be part of the conversations that are happening, you know, right, uh, right across R1 schools, you can find out what's on people's minds in any corner of the discipline and retransmit that to your students, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, that that's one of the strongest uses of it. And, and probably, frankly, that's probably one of the ways that I tend to use it more than, than any other uh, today is just to keep abreast of things. I teach a lot about digital media, about popular culture. A lot of my classes have to have to do with those topics from, from one angle or another. Um, and so Twitter helps as a constant sort of feed. I'm, I'm reading it much more than I'm posting to it. Uh, these days. Uh, and so I'm, I'm still sort of consuming a lot of that content and helps me sort of share things. Um, I, I still have my students so oftentimes use Twitter um, for different types of assignments. And and when I do that, um, I remember years ago, I, I had uh, students sort of tweeting to a hashtag, we're watching a film and we live tweeted the film. Um, and it was about Ai Weiwei, the Chinese artist. And uh, and before the end, uh, before the end of the class, I away started tweeting back to the students and retweeting. Oh, that's awesome. He's got like, you know, a million or something followers. Their minds were blown. They're like, oh, my yeah. gosh, I can't believe that, you know, some some celebrity uh, is 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 reading my tweet. Um, right. And so in that sense, it, 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 it sort of can shrink the world and, and can bring things together in ways that, you know, it doesn't overcome all these other power hierarchies. But there are many examples of this. And that's something I come back to in the book a lot. Right. It, it's, it's very clear that. Uh, that that people who are already in positions of power get more power from Twitter, but it's also the case that that there are little examples where where kind of the the everyday people can, can really work together, uh, especially and to gain more gain more traction to to have influence there. So so yeah, I think there's a lot, there's kind of a, a mixture of, of effects there. I see, yeah, I see it as a new field of play, and there are some people in old field of fields of play who will compete in this new field well and there are others who won't and uh some people will be able to scratch their way up without resources or help and uh, other people won't be able to do anything even if you give them all the help in the world it's a new field new sort of field for talking 
That's right. Before I let you go, tell me, where are you uh, taking this research now? So it's interesting. So I started this project in the, you know, in the Obama era. And when I was doing that, um, you know, I made a bunch of sort of assumptions and I, I focused primarily in the book on kind of uh, left-leaning politics and on, uh, at least for much of it, kind of what what was happening in terms of citizens uh, being able to, whether citizen journalists or just sort of activists who are using Twitter to kind of hold media accountable as a way to kind of do the work of democracy through social media and to kind of uh, hold media institutions and, and via holding media institutions, hold political actors and political institutions accountable. And so a lot of that work was really focused on that. And I was to me, it was easily justifiable um, in, in the, the sort of political environment we were living in for much of the Obama era. But of course, <laughs> things changed completely. And I don't want to say that it was overnight, but we started to see around that time uh, a very different sort of political landscape. Um, and I think obviously that it started happening before then, but it became more and more obvious. And, and so more recently, I've been interested um, in kind of the inverse of this, which is to say, so it's not necessarily, if one of the baked in assumptions that, that I sort of critique and complicate throughout the book, but is, is that there is uh, kind of the work of democracy happening on Twitter, um, even if there are bots and there are bad actors and there are people who are doing that, uh, and maybe those are less exceptional uh, um, than are clear in some parts of the book than others, in part because of the, the, the case studies I was looking at and the data I, I was analyzing, um, but I think that 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 more recently I've realized that that it's also useful to maybe take the inverse approach, which is to say, what if instead of doing the work of democracy, a lot of what's going on um, in in today's sort of media system, looking at social media, but also looking at establishment media and um, and, and those larger media channels, cable television, especially and talk radio, is the way that 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 sort of media are being manipulated to kind of spread lies or propaganda or disinformation. Yeah. Uh, and so I've kind of taken a broader focus beyond just Twitter. And I focused mm -hmm. a lot more in some of my, my uh, current research I'm working on now about kind of how problematic information and propaganda are, are flowing. And to me, it, it's also a continuation of a lot of the theoretical questions I'm asking in this book about, about yeah. media and power. But like, isn't it what the people want? On some level, like, you know, like I, I always I always have this discussion when I when I talk about media, right? Like PBS NewsHour is is a fine news show. You know, I enjoy it. I, I watch it regularly. It's available to everybody. And yet what does everybody want? They want some guy in a bow tie to call some weirdo a name. And like, is this not I am I am feeling like a lot of these media ha, are they, they are not so centralized there is not so much power to restrict the consumer's media diet there are way more options and people are free to choose and that is in fact what they are choosing uh it's what the people want what do you what do you think of that yeah it's uh i on part of me, I don't disagree uh, with that. And we can look mm. at the sort of entertainment value um, of this and the sort of outrage that they're that they're being sold um, and realize that certainly, yeah, we tend to tune into that. Psychologists, I'm sure, have explanations for, for why yeah, that I'm might sure. be. Um, yeah. But something I used to tell my students years ago, and this still comes up from time to time, is, is that that's, you know, we might take a version of that explanation as the defense that media sort of uh, managers um, ha have made for years over 
you know, sort of doing bad journalism. Say, well, if 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 we if the public uh, didn't like it, then they would stop consuming it, right? It's the sort of market logic, yeah. sort of uh, assumptions baked in there. And my response to that has always been, um, well, if we've been raised in an environment where that's all we know, and we've mm-hmm. seen very very little, and I don't mean to say that there isn't good journalism out there, but the way in which it's packaged to us in this kind of outrage format, um, and it's made to compete with that. If we were in an environment where it was sort of more like the so-called public sphere uh, kind of environment, where we're, in, where we're uh, sort of collecting information and we're, we're actually debating that rather than just shouting at each other, I think if we were raised in an environment where that was the case and that type of, of discourse was was the norm and was readily available, I, part of me wonders whether we would have a different sort of taste uh, yeah. than, than, than many of the much of the public does today. So uh, you have a new book in the works. You want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, I do. Uh, thanks. So the book uh, is called All Media Are Social, Sociological Perspectives on, on Mass Media. Uh, my co-author, Andrew Lindner, and I have been teaching media sociology courses for a long time. And both of us have been wanting kind of a shorter and more reader-friendly introduction to media sociology. So rather than like a comprehensive textbook, that we wanted something that's pretty engagingly written, but also theoretically and empirically driven. Uh, and so we decided to write that book ourselves, and it was just released this month by Routledge. Oh, um, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's sort of structured around uh, the way we tend uh, as scholars to view the field of media sociology. Both of us uh, uh, in many ways identify as media sociologists, and we sort of borrow from Wendy Griswold's Cultural Diamond to sort of structure the book into kind of a few different sections. So, so one is focused on production, what she talks about is like creators, and, and we explore their kind of the role of political economy, of ownership, of regulation, of professional news cultures. We have another one on content, or what Griswold calls cultural objects, and that looks at uh, media representations of gender, sexuality, class, race, ethnicity, uh, and uh, the role that media play in the public sphere. And then we have uh, uh, the final section on audiences or what Grizzle calls receivers. And we look at um, the kind of possible effects of media uh, consumption, as well as the role uh, uh, that people play in sort of media related forms of activism. Um, we think it's both a useful tool for teaching about media and also a kind of convenient survey of what sociology ha- has had to say about one of society's most critical institutions. Wait, so what's the t- give us the title again. The book is called All Media Are Social, Sociological Perspectives on Mass Media. And it's with who? It's with uh, Routledge. Routledge. All right. Very nice. All right. Thank you very much, Stephen, for talking to me today. Thank you. I appreciate it, Joe. You've been listening to the Annex of Sociology podcast. A special thank you to Stephen Barnard of St. Lawrence University. His book, Citizens at the Gates, Twitter, Network Publics, and the Transformation of American Journalism is published by Paul Grave Macmillan. And his uh, new book, uh, All Media Are Social, is available uh, from Rutledge. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter at Socianix, and on Facebook at the Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Lisette Moreno, music by Lena Orsa. I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.